0: Welcome to Extreme Genes, brought to you by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This week on Extreme Genes Family History Radio, it's a smorgasbord of genealogical topics. Hi, it's Fisher, and I'll be talking to Rhonda McClure from the New England Historic Genealogical Society about all that's required to become a dual citizen of Italy, one of the two countries that actually can make you a dual citizen by descent. Plus, we're going to find out about genetic genealogy involving reuniting Asian children with their military fathers. And we have an update on an incredible records project involving Catholic records of New England. It's a loaded show this week on Extreme Genes Family History Radio, brought to you by FamilySearch.org. Discover, gather, connect. A presentation of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And welcome to another spine-tingling episode of Extreme Genes, America's family history show, and ExtremeGenes.com. It is Fisher here, your radio root sleuth, on the program where we shake your family tree and watch the nuts fall out. And it's great to have you along. we got another great show today. We're going to be talking Catholic records, genetic genealogy, reuniting children from Asia with their military American fathers. And ask us anything today about dual citizenship, especially in Italy, you will not believe how complicated it is that's all coming up later in the show now david is on vacation this week so naturally we got to find somebody to fill in and we got a great one this week from tampa florida he's somebody you know from the genealogy guys podcast he is drew smith drew welcome to extreme genes it's great to have you on Hey, Scott, I've been looking forward to
1: it. Although, I tell you, I'm not quite as funny as David, and, and he sings karaoke better than I do.
0: <laughs> he is a good karaoke singer. You are absolutely He's right. Amazing. Well, he let's should. talk about our family histoire news today, because uh, we've got some amazing stories, starting mm-hmm. with Israel.
1: So one of the things that's been exciting, of course, as the Holocaust gets further back in history, we know we've been losing people, uh, people who survived the Holocaust, but yet there's someone who's 104. And the news came out recently about this person who celebrated with their descendants, and they didn't get all their descendants. I guess they just wasn't practical.
0: They got 400 of them. Yeah. Imagine. Yeah, 400 of them. And this was at at the wall there in Jerusalem. And it was just kind of a way to celebrate a victory over the Nazis. And and this woman lost her parents and she lost other family members. And now here she is celebrating her 104th with 400 descendants in Israel. What a great story. And of course, children, grandchildren, -grandchildren, great-grandchildren. Second grades, I'm sure there are, there too. It's got to be, Oh, there probably
1: are after all this time. Yeah. Amazing. And I think they said they they were missing 10%, so they couldn't all be there, but 90% of them were there, and that's so exciting.
0: Well, the DNA stories continue to make news, and the one in Centerville, Utah, that caused all the problems with our friends over at Jet Match has been resolved. As the uh, young man who has been unnamed in this case, he was the one who went and attempted to strangle an organist at a church as she was practicing on a Saturday night alone in the building. He broke in a window, and he has admitted to the crime. And the victim, amazingly, in the courtroom forgave him. And just said, I have been praying for you, but I also want you to know that I have lived in fear ever since you did this, not knowing if you might be coming after me again. So she can rest assured that she's quite safe now. But what a story. And, of course, saw through genetic genealogy once again.
1: And it was kind of unique because most of the stories we've been hearing about have been mostly cold cases. This was a unique case. This had just happened. This was not a cold case. With the concern that, particularly because it was a young person who did it, that what if he does it again? That's it. And this could happen. So this kind of changed the whole look at how this tool might be used.
0: Well, and this is, of course, as a result of the fact that it's a new tool and things evolve and things change. And, you know, the opt in for Jedmatch had to come eventually. And and that's what has taken place. But it's great to have this resolved because this was not just a simple assault, as it was often portrayed in the media. This was really an attempted murder. She passed out three times and somehow survived this attack. And so glad to see that that has been taken care of. Well, shall we go across the pond now, Drew? Let's
1: be posh and go across the pond, uh, Scott. I'd like to do that. So you, you talk about the old royalty here, and I'll talk about the young royalty. How about that?
0: There we go. Okay, let's start with King Edward VIII. Now, before he was King Edward, he was known as David. And before there was his lovely American heiress that he wanted to marry and leave the throne for, he had another lover at that time. And now his letters to her have been released. And it seems he had some very harsh things to say about the monarchy that it was really no longer of use and why are we doing this to the people and how he hated his job and he doesn't want to put another day into it and yet of course he ultimately became king anyway so it's a fascinating story you can see that on extremegenes.com
1: and now you have a modern royal princess eugenie of york the daughter of prince andrew and sarah and she's doing something that's the first time a royal has done this and Scott, you and I are now being joined by royalty because Princess Eugenie is going to start her own podcast.
0: Isn't this great?
1: And, yeah. Yeah. One of the things she's been very involved with is being director of the Anti-Slavery Collective. They look at modern slavery, human trafficking, and they try to raise awareness of it. And so this podcast is exactly that. It's going to be highlighting what's going on in this world of, unfortunately, modern
0: slavery. See, there we go. We are trendsetters, Drew.
1: Yes. Yeah. No, that's right we're doing it first and then the royals come in and yeah.
0: then they follow the they just fact. say well, what are, what are drew and fish doing now you know <laughs> there they go so thanks so much for filling in for uh, david drew you've been fantastic and we look forward to having you on again thanks scott looking forward to it take care very excited to have jessica Howe on the show she is a genetic genealogist for our friends at legacy tree genealogist based out of alabama how are you jessica I'm great, Fisher. How are you? Awesome. I'm, I'm so glad to have you on the show because you are a specialist in Amer-Asian genetic genealogy, meaning you're helping a lot of people who are looking for their American fathers. And often this has to do with military service from World War II and through the period of Vietnam and, of course, Korea. How long have you been doing this?
2: Uh, for about five years.
0: That's awesome. You know, we all know about genetic genealogy and what it does here in the United States and what it does for cold cases and crime. Talk about this specialty, this little branch of genetic genealogy, because I know it's got to be very big.
2: It is. It's starting to become more popular. The more availability the DNA testing has become, and people are sending DNA tests to their family and friends in Asia. And these people are looking for answers about their biological fathers. It was a big issue for American soldiers to R&R in Asia during World War II and Vietnam. And sometimes that produced illegitimate children. And our opportunity is to be able to give them a name and a voice to their family.
0: This has got to be quite a surprise to some of these old soldiers now when you get in touch with them.
2: It is. Yes. A lot of times it comes out of the blue, but they've handled it pretty well. Every person that we've had an opportunity to help, we've explained the situation and they've been welcomed with open arms.
0: Isn't that great? And, and I've always seen that even here in the States. I mean, most cases work out pretty darn well. I mean, there are some and they get announced pretty loudly sometimes that don't work out so well, but the overwhelming majority do. And I think that says a lot about our society, don't you?
2: I do. In the time that we're living in right now, any time that you can bring joy and, and happiness and closure to someone, then that's all that we're about.
0: Exactly. Well, let's talk about some of these cases that you've dealt with here. I know you had one recently in Taiwan. Tell us about that case.
2: Okay. I had a client. Her name is Annie. And Annie was born in Taiwan during the Vietnam War to a Taiwanese mother and an American soldier. Her mother never really spoke about her father, and it appeared that she had had a relationship with the father, but didn't really want to discuss it at all. So later on, when Annie was seven or eight years old, they immigrated to the United States, and her mother married. But a few years after immigrating, sadly passed away, and she took the name of Annie's father with her when she passed away. Oh, boy. So, yeah. About 40 years later, Annie decided she was going to take DNA tests because of the advancements in genetic genealogy. But unfortunately she didn't have any close matches. The closest matches that she had on all three testing sites were around the fourth cousin match or or farther away. So she enlisted my help and we were able to provide her with information and do genetic genealogy and find her father who was living and now uh, she can give pictures to her children, and her grandchildren.
0: Wow. Isn't yeah. that something? Well, let's talk about that now. You, you had fourth cousin matches as the closest. What did you have to do to break this case?
2: Well, we took all of her matches on three different websites that she had tested on and compared those. And the closest ones, we tried to find patterns in locations where the people's family trees had different locations. With Annie's case, all of her family had DNA matches only in Scotland and Ireland. But her mother had always told her that her father was an American soldier. So we traced the family trees all the way up to be able to find a common ancestor with several different DNA matches and said, "Okay, John and Jane are definitely Annie's great-great-grandparents. Okay. from there, we were able to branch it out down farther and then find one out of all of Jane and John's nine children. Only one of them immigrated to the United States. Okay. so, yes. So we ended up taking that and built that family tree down to be able to find potential candidates who are around the same age that Annie's father would have been and see if any of those gentlemen may have been stationed in Taiwan or served in the military at all. For the ones that were passed away, we were able to access military records and kind of get an idea whether or not they would be good candidates. None of those gentlemen were, so we decided to work on the living candidates and we sent correspondence to those. And a gentleman contacted us and said, hey, I was in Taiwan during this period of time. Not really sure. Don't think I'm I'm the birth father, but, you know, uh, be be happy to answer any questions for you I can. Wow. Okay, that's great. Yeah. He agreed to do a DNA test, and we sent him a test, and when the test results came back, it was positive. That was Annie's father.
0: Wow. So, it sounds like he kind of had a little hint that maybe he was just because of the time and place, yes?
2: Um. actually had absolutely no idea. He was totally shocked. He left about 6 months after Annie had been conceived and went back to the United States and had a long career here in the US and he went on with his life and never really thought anything of it. And then when we contacted him out of the blue, he was really caught off guard. We explained that this isn't a scam. This isn't something that we're trying to. Um, <laughs> this isn't going to
0: cost you anything. This just isn't going to cost
2: you anything. Yeah, no one wants anything from you. We just want to be able to give her some answers. And if you're not, then that's okay. You know, we won't bother you. And if you agree to do one, that would be wonderful.
0: Well, and not only so, that, if he does the test and he's not the father, at least it gives you another test to compare against. Maybe there's a closer relationship to somebody
2: exactly because we knew that he was definitely related to annie but we wanted to make sure whether it was one of his brothers possibly or a distant cousin well you know a closer cousin sure Um, than what you had right so shockingly enough he ended up being the only person we needed to test
0: (laughs) you were prepared to do a lot more weren't you
2: I was. was. It never worked out that way, ever. You never have someone the first time that you speak with them and say, you know, did you happen to have any relationships with any women while you happened to be in Taiwan? And he said, yeah, I I did. But everybody did. And I was like, yeah, that's okay. Um, No judgment. Yeah, no judgment. Not a problem. That's not what I'm asking out I just want to make sure if you could verify all of this family history for me but it ended up giving Annie some really good health information too because her father's family had had some medical problems that she needed to be aware of and it gave her a lot of closure and gave her family a picture to be able to put with Annie and say yep you know what Yes, you do look a lot like your dad.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's such a big deal. That is such an amazing thing. And it's important for people to understand, too, that sometimes you don't need DNA direct from the birth parent either to figure out who the birth parent is. I mean, that's what genetic genealogy does. So even if you can just get somebody close to them, you might be able to figure that out.
2: Yeah. I dealt with a case last year where an elderly woman had been adopted in the early 1930s and she didn't know any of her biological family she'd taken a dna test and we were able to confirm who her parents were through dna because of some distant cousins that she had had and come to find out her biological father and the biological mother were in-laws Um, Oh, wow. So, yeah. Okay. So, she, (laughs) yes, it was kind of shocking, but she was okay with it. And she ended up being able to meet some of her half siblings that were still living and some of the cousins and, and grandchildren of those family members. So, it was wonderful.
0: Yeah, it really is amazing. I am a little bit surprised, and, and to listeners who don't know much about genetic genealogy, I'm still kind of surprised when I hear people say, well, why would they take a test, you know, like like a criminal or something, if they know that they've got this? I said, no, 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 they don't identify the criminals that way or identify ancestors, because you know, the 2nd great grandparents aren't around to test. You do it through their descendants. And look at the amazing results that, that we have. And as we've talked about on past shows on Extreme Genes, you can figure out birth parents through autosomal testing typically as far back as the 1700s. And it's it's really quite remarkable what can be done to confirm, right?
2: It is. It is. And it's really helpful for people that don't have any family history if you are an adoptee or an orphan and you want to be able to not necessarily even find your biological family if you want to be able to find family members to find out health information that's always really good you know you, you can go find a lot of interesting stories you don't necessarily have to do it to be able to find out who your biological family is. Yeah, you don't necessarily need need a
0: relationship. And and, and sometimes they they are toxic. You know, you don't want that relationship. But fortunately, uh, most of the time we hear pretty good stuff.
2: Right. Exactly. It's always good to hear the good stories. Sometimes you hear the bad, but that comes with the the job.
0: (laughs) Well, this sounds like a great offshoot of genetic genealogy, dealing with uh, people from Taiwan, the Amerasians, and uh, identifying their military parents. Great work, Jessica. Thanks so much for coming on, and we hope to have you on again sometime. Absolutely, Fisher. Thank
2: you so much. You guys have a great
0: day. She is Jessica Howe. She's a genetic genealogist for Legacy Tree Genealogists, and what great work. And uh, always excited to talk to my friends at the New England Historic Genealogical Society because there's always so many new projects going on. I think the biggest one they've got going right now encompasses all of the New England area with their historic Catholic records online. And I've got Molly Rogers. She's the database coordinator for NEHGS. And Thomas Lester, he's the archivist and records manager for the Archdiocese of Boston. Greetings, you two. You've got some uh, growing news to share with us we do thank you for having us on the show we're excited to be here so tell me about this i know the goal is to get to like 11 million names that are in the original records and right now how many are you up to
3: we're at 4.5 million names right now and so we started with the records from 1789 through 1900 And now we're excited to announce that we're extending the project from 1901 to
0: 1920. Wow. Now, now that period, I would imagine, is uh, one of great growth, right? So you might have as many names in that 20-year period as you did for 50 or 70 years before that.
4: Absolutely. In terms of actual volumes that we'll be digitizing and number of index names, it almost matches up exactly where that 20 years matches the numbers for the first 100-plus years we did in the initial phase of the project.
0: Oh, wow. And so this is going to be something also that's closer to people living now, so you might find more connections as a result of this 20-year period. Now, as you go about indexing all these records and getting them online, are they available for free? So we
3: are currently making two different databases. The first is free, and it's image-only. So that means that you can sort of browse through the images on our site, but nothing is searchable. Our second database is called Massachusetts Roman Catholic Archdiocese of Boston Records, 1789 to 1920. And it's fully searchable if you are a paying member of the New England Historic Genealogical Society.
0: All right. Two levels. So for all these records, what can we expect to find in those, especially this new 20 year period you're working on?
4: Well, I think after the turn of the century, so from 1900 to about 1920, you start to see new waves of immigrants arriving. Obviously, Irish immigration was kind of the focal point of the 19th century. But now you see new groups arriving. So you'll see people arriving from Italy, Poland, Lithuania, Portugal. And so I think this is going to broaden the interest to a lot of people who have ancestors from those countries. And that arrived in the area during the first two decades of the 20th century.
0: Does this cover New York quite a bit as well? Uh, We don't see too many from New York,
4: but the earliest records, the Diocese of Boston, when it was created, covered all of New England. So some of those earlier records cover all of Massachusetts and, and the other New England states, including Indian missions as well.
0: Oh, wow. So when we hear Boston, the Diocese of Boston, we're not talking about that limited area. You're talking about all of New England. And, of course, people who came to New England who were Catholic and and were married or christened or buried at that time, they might show up in those records, correct?
3: Yeah. The most common record types that we're digitizing are baptisms, marriages, and confirmations. But some parishes also have death records and, you know, maybe sick calls. So there's a variety of different record types.
0: Parents on there? Origins?
3: Mostly. It's sort of every parish does it differently. So if it's baptisms, they definitely have parents. If it's marriages, you're never quite sure whether they recorded it or not. (laughs) And again, for the place of origin, sometimes it might be just their address in Boston. And sometimes it's the county that they came from in Ireland. It really depends on who was keeping the records.
0: Right. So you can find them. It's just kind of a potluck kind of thing. Yeah. It depends on who was recording the
4: parishes, what the standards were at the time. I'm sorry, who was recording the um, the entries. And then also, as you do move into the 20th century, you actually see on the pages, they go from just using a blank notebook where they're recording the basics to a notebook they purchased where there was a template printed, and that prompted them to fill in places of origin, occupation, parents, and so whoever was entering the records was guided along. As you kind of move forward in time to more recently, they become more robust.
0: So it gets a little more uh, detailed as we get into this next period.
4: Uh, Absolutely. More consistent across
0: the board as well. Sure.
5: These are
3: all arranged at the church and parish level.
0: Okay, so you could actually go and then find perhaps government records then of the same thing afterwards if you find their name in the database.
3: Yeah, we've tried to compare sometimes different immigrant groups like, are they in both the church records and the state vital records? And sometimes it's very clear they kept their records well, everyone's there. And occasionally we've had trouble finding them in the state records. So I think these church records are really important in those cases where maybe this is the only record of that child.
0: Now, why would it be that they would be only in the church record, but not in a state record, just out of curiosity?
4: Uh, We speculated a little bit. I think some of them, especially if they recently arrived to the country, they may not have known. They had to report it to a civil authority, and they may have just seen doing it in one place, doing it at their church when the child was baptized. That's sufficient enough.
3: I think when you work with the records, there's so many different steps in the record-taking process where something could have gone wrong, but sometimes it's hard to know. And
4: even the records in both places, you'll see... You know, small discrepancies in terms of spelling or a date of birth might be off by one day. So uh, that's not uncommon to find either.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, you find that in, in pretty much everything. So how many volunteers do you have working on this thing right now?
3: We have about a hundred volunteers. Some of them come into our research library on Newbury Street in Boston while others work remotely from their computers all across the country.
0: Well, that's great. So you've got uh, probably Catholics and non-catholics working on it. And how long do you think it'll take to complete the uh, the project, at least this next phase, to get it from four point five million up to eleven million?
3: We're hoping to complete that phase by twenty twenty four. And then I think with this next update, we're going to double that number again and honestly, that might take us till almost 2030. It's a lot of uh Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, it's a lot of stuff.
0: You need more volunteers. That's the deal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> can we help you with that?
3: Um, my colleague, Rachel Adams, is the database services volunteer coordinator. And so she's always looking for more volunteers and can explain the project to people and get them started if they're interested.
0: Okay. So Rachel Adams, if somebody wants to volunteer, how can they reach her?
3: Her email address is rachel.adams at org.
0: All right. That'd be really useful. So ultimately, then, after you get up to the next 20 years, are you going to continue beyond that from 1920 forward?
4: Well, I think we have quite a bit of time, at least a few years, until we get to that point and we're almost done scanning everything through 1920. So right now, we're just kind of getting started on this next phase of the project and, you know three, four years down the line when that's complete. I think we can kind of reevaluate the landscape at that time and, and see if it's the right decision to move forward. But we're very excited about getting this next phase started.
0: Absolutely. So, Thomas, you've been working on this for a long time. So have you, Molly. Tell us a story of something somebody has found that really made an impression on you.
3: I think one of the most exciting things, one of our patrons reported, she has been looking for a marriage record for many, many years. She has actually visited Thomas in the archive at Braintree in person. She looked in all the right places, and she could not find this record. And once we had the volumes indexed, it turns out that this marriage record was scrawled at the bottom of a baptisms book. So she was finally able to find that record where it was <laughs> it, totally in the wrong place.
0: Totally in the wrong place. Yeah, That happens now and again, doesn't it? And it's just such a shock and such a pleasing thing, but it kind of makes you mad, too, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, guys, good luck on this. It sounds like you're you're really rolling along now with this next phase. 4.5 million records right now in the Historic Catholic Records Online at NEHGS.org. She's Molly Rogers, the database coordinator for the project. He's Thomas Lester, the archivist and records manager for the Archdiocese of Boston. A great project that's going to go on for a long, long time. If you want to volunteer and help make this thing happen, as you heard, you can do that at Rachel.Adams at NEHGS.org. She can help get you involved in the project, and maybe we can move that timeline up. Thanks for coming on, you guys. Thank you for having us. Thank you. And coming up next, it's another Ask Us Anything segment as we continue on Extreme Genes, America's Family History Show. We've got Rhonda McClure on from the New England Historic Genealogical Society. And, Rhonda, it's great to have you back. And our question today is from Michael in New York, and he says, how do I go about gathering the records I need to become a dual citizen of Italy? So I know, Rhonda, you're an expert in that kind of field. Uh, Yes, I am. Italy, though, is a little different, as I understand it, when it comes to dual citizenship.
5: It is in that it's one of the two countries that I consider dual citizenship by descent, in that you can trace back beyond just your parents to perhaps acquire that dual citizenship. With Italy, one of their big issues is whether or not your immigrant ancestor naturalized before your next ancestor was born. Oh. Basically what they're saying is, if your great-grandfather came into the U.S. and naturalized before your grandfather was born, then you do not qualify because he's already abdicated his connection to Italy. Sure. If your great-grandfather comes into this country and your grandfather is born and then great-grandpa naturalizes, then you can qualify because the child was already born before the father gave up his connection
0: so i would imagine the logic here as uh, confusing as it may be is that the baby did not renounce the citizenship it was born to at the time right
5: exactly okay provided of course you do that after
0: 1912 after (laughs) 1912 wow so there's a a lot lot of of rules a lot of rules here wow with italian what parliament thought this one up so how far back can you be italian and still get dual citizenship under these rules So the big
5: thing is the immigrant. Technically, the furthest back I think they allow is, like, second great grandparent. Okay. But again, that's got to be the person, like, coming to this country. Then when they naturalize plays a role. So if they naturalized before 1912, they basically did renounce, not only for themselves, but for all of their descendants. Sure. Yet to come. Okay. Even if you weren't born, it's already been renounced. After 1912, that was no longer part of it.
0: Interesting. Uh, Okay, so where do they get these records then? Obviously, you want to get the naturalization record for your immigrant ancestor and a birth record for uh, the person who comes after that in your line, and I, I would imagine right down to yourself, correct?
5: Yes, you have to get a lot of records. So basically starting with yourself. If you do qualify, say, to the great-grandparent, you have to have your birth marriage record. You have to have your parents, both parents, births and deaths, if applicable, plus their marriage. Yep. So through the paternal, you'd have to have your grandparents' birth marriages and deaths, and then your great-grandfather's. So this is
0: kind of like joining a lineage society, practically, right?
5: Pretty much. (laughs) And on top of all of that, with the Italians, not only do you have to get all of those records, and they all have to be certified. Right. The naturalization record doesn't need to be certified, but then everything has to be translated into Italian, And all of the records, both the certified records and the translations, need to be certified and then apostilled. Oh, boy. It's basically an international certification.
0: We got this question from Michael in New York about how you go about getting records for dual citizenship in Italy, and it's really turned into, I had no idea, Rhonda, that it was this complicated, an international certification and, and what the timing is and after what year and before. what, Anything else that we missed in that last segment on Italy that Michael should know?
5: Well, patience is a virtue, (laughs) uh, because in addition to getting the records here within the U.S., of course, for the couple that comes over, you have to get their records from Italy, and that can take some time. They've got a lot to do. They don't understand the big deal of this. So it could take time to get those records, again, a certified record from them. And then you have to get an appointment with the consulate. And some consulates are uh, out two to five years in getting an appointment with the consulate.
0: I remember hearing that Mike Piazza, who's a Hall of Fame catcher who used to play for the L.A. Dodgers and the New York Mets, he's obviously of Italian descent, and he did this. He's got the dual citizenship, and he actually coached an Italian baseball team Mm -hmm. and uh, enjoys doing that. So it's really interesting. Any other countries with uh, unique rules here while we're on the subject?
5: Uh, Well, the only other country that allows for dual citizenship through descent would be Ireland. And they allow it, provided that you have a grandparent that was born in Ireland. And for the purposes of Ireland, they consider it to be the entire island. So that includes Northern Ireland as well as the Republic.
0: Okay. So grandparent is it. Beyond that, it's too far back.
5: Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Any of these and rules
0: with uh, when they naturalized or any of that stuff?
5: No, they do not worry about any of that information. There's a lot more straightforward. And basically what you're doing is you're being put onto a foreign birth registry. And then after that, you apply for your passport. And their records are a lot less as well. You just need to have certified copies of vital records for everybody. But nothing has to be translated unless it's in a foreign language. So, like, if it was in French, then you'd have to translate sure. it.
0: Sure. They want it in uh, English.
5: Exactly. And nothing has to be apostilled like the Italians, uh, <laughs> fortunately. There's a word uh, I never
0: wish to hear again. Thank you.
5: <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but the one thing for the Irish is they will not take any substitutes for civil records. So, in other words, if you can't find a civil birth record out of Ireland for that grandparent, you're out of luck because they will not substitute a church record. has to all be vital records, civil wow. vital records.
0: government records.
5: hmm exactly.
0: Yeah. Okay, and so the benefits, of course, in Italy and dual citizenship and in Ireland are what? Why do people generally do this?
5: Well, for a lot of people, it's so that it opens opportunities perhaps to work in the EU, because, of course, both countries are part of the EU. And it's easier to work there if you have an EU passport.
0: Is it easier to travel also?
5: I mean, it can be because you can enter in under the EU passport, so under the Italian passport or the Irish passport, rather than your U.S. passport. And then travel is easier. The downside to that is if you get into trouble in any way, shape, or form, don't call the American consulate because you did not go in as an American citizen. Oh,
0: wow. That's so interesting. But cannot help you. She's Rhonda McClure from the New England Historic Genealogical Society and AmericanAncestors.org. Fascinating conversation. Thank you so much, Rhonda. And thank you, Michael, for the question. And, of course, uh, if anybody's got a question for Ask Us Anything, you can email it to us at AskUsAnything at ExtremeGenes.com. And that is a wrap for this week's show. Thanks for joining us. Hope you learned a few things that are going to help you out in your journey. Talk to you next week. Thanks for joining us. And remember, as far as everyone knows, we're a nice, normal family. This has been Extreme Genes. Share your family story by going to FamilySearch.org.